Good morning. Whether you are joining us over the live stream or here in person, welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth and meaning and beauty. I'm Lee Legault, affiliated community minister here at First UU, and I welcome each of you this morning. We come from a long line of seeing the spark of the divine in every person. And it's in that tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us. If you're online in the comments and if in person, greet your neighbors. Please say with me our words for lighting the chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine on systems of oppression they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. The words of Langston Hughes. We have tomorrow bright before us like a flame. Yesterday, a night gone thing, a sundown name. And dawn today, broad arch above the road we came, we march. This congregation has a common religious purpose. It's our mission. We wrote it together, we put it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. Please join me in doing so now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice for the beloved community. Each week, we have a brief moment for beloved community. This week, I wanted to challenge you to think of if you've ever seen a black nun. I can think of one. I can think of one, and I can think of part two, where she's in it again. <laughs> and I think there was maybe a part three, and it was great, and her name is Whoopi Goldberg, but she's not actually a nun. Um, but a academic named Shannon D. Williams, who grew up black and Catholic in Memphis, Tennessee, likewise only knew of Whoopi Goldberg, but decided to research the history of black nuns. And it turns out there's a lot of them. And she has put out a book about them called Sub Subversive Habits. I know, I like it, right? You just want to have it as a coffee table book, because how awesome. Um, in it, she tells their story chronologically, but it's always in the context of her theme, which is that there's a nearly 200-year history of these nuns in the U.S. who have been totally overlooked or suppressed, certainly not represented by people who largely resented and disrespected them. So check that out, Subversive Habits. Good morning, my friends. I'd like to invite all of our young people and our children to come up and hear the story for all ages. 
All right, friends, today we are going to read a book about a little boy who collects all kinds of words. See if you can find your favorite word in this book. This is called The Word Collector. It's written by Peter H. Reynolds. You ready? Collectors collect things. Some people collect stamps. Some people collect coins. Others collect rocks. Some collect art. Some collect bugs. Others collect baseball cards. Some people collect comic books. And Jerome, what did he collect? Jerome collected words. He collected words he heard. My trip to Peru was perfectly pleasant. He wrote down Peru. Certain words caught his attention. He collected words he saw. Willow. Certain words jumped out at him. He collected words he read, like emerald. Certain words popped off the page. Short and sweet words. Spark, bloom, drift, dream. Two-syllable treats. Treasure, motif, whisper, candid, hover, glimmer. And multi-syllable words that sounded like little songs. Kaleidoscope, guacamole. There were words he did not know the meaning of at first, but they were marvelous to say. Aromatic, vociferous, effervent. Yeah, there's some nice words too, though. There were words whose sounds perfectly suited their meaning. Tyrannosaurus rex, torrential, molasses, smudge, bellow. Yeah, a big roar. Jerome filled his scrapbooks with more and more of his favorite words. Jerome's collections grew. He began organizing them. Dreamy, science, sad, action, poetic. One day, while transporting them, Jerome slipped and his words went flying. Yeah, you're right. As he began to pick them up, he noticed his collections had become jumbled. Big words next to little words. Sad words next to dreamy words. Jerome began stringing words together. Words he had not imagined being side by side. He used his words to write poems. He used his poems to make songs. They moved. They delighted. Some of his simplest words were his most powerful. I understand. I'm sorry. Thank you. You matter. Yeah, he was saying you matter to that puppy. I bet you would say that too. <laughs> yeah. Jerome eagerly collected more and more of his favorite words. The more words he knew, 
the more clearly he could share with the world what he was thinking, feeling, and dreaming. Oh, yeah, they are. There's so many. I bet those are heavy words. Yeah. One breezy afternoon, Jerome climbed the highest hill, pulling a wagon packed with his word collection. He smiled as he emptied his collection of words into the wind. He saw children in the valley below, scurrying about, collecting words from the breeze. Jerome had no words to describe how happy that made him. Today's reading comes to us from Rumi. It's entitled, A Great Wagon. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. This is the time in our service. When we center ourselves, we breathe together. Breathing in and breathing out, we follow our breath to a deeper place, a place of greater wisdom, a place of greater well-being, a place where the spark of the divine resides within each of us. Breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence, Remembering that sounds signaling the presence of small children and human diversity are part of the sacred silence. During this time, please feel free to light an actual or virtual candle if you are so moved, representing sorrow, joy, hope, remembrance, resilience.
During my chaplaincy residency, I spent 12 hours a week in a virtual classroom learning the principles and theories of chaplaincy and 40 hours a week applying what I was learning in a clinical setting in my hospital, working with patients and building my skills. But even more than I was learning, really I was unlearning. I was unlearning ways of being and ways of communicating that I had been inundated with since birth and that I had, frankly, honed to a razor's edge in my law practice for 16 years. My old way of communicating primarily involved judgment or persuasion, sometimes if I was kind, reasoning, logic, all those soft skills, you know, head and intellect-based skills, skills which I'm going to make a blanket statement that you use are often very good at and pride ourselves on. But in my new world, at the hospital, I use heart-based skills. I speak very little, and I listen mostly. I ignore red herrings of judgment and evaluations, and I instead listen for the feelings and the needs underneath those feelings. And in doing so, people open up their lives to me, and they share their innermost selves, and that is a treasure, gifts that I hold sacred. And in this kind of communication, I would say I don't so much communicate as commune. It's kind of a perspective shift. On the night of September 29th, 2020, I was on call at the hospital. So I got there at 5, and I would be on till 8 a.m. handling any emergencies. And in between patient emergencies, and there were quite a few at that particular time, I watched snatches of the first presidential debate between Trump and Biden. And I read homework chapters of a book that my chaplain educators had assigned called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. (laughs) And, you know, that night really stands out for me because it was just such a surreal contrast between what I was seeing on the TV and what I was doing and experiencing in patient rooms and reading about in my book. And I was forced to the unpleasant conclusion that my old way of being, which had brought me a lot of money and a a fair sense of identity and a place within the community, was basically a a violent, kind of ill-tempered thing, um, uncivilized in any but perhaps the courtroom setting. And I was fuming seeing that in the presidential debate and realizing, oh, yeah, I know, I do that all the time. So, yeah. Like, the difference between me and Trump is, you know, like, I've got better hair, you know? (laughs) And I have, it's more real here. But um, my old way of being essentially brought out or pointed out the worst in other people, highlighting their wrongness or their flaws. My old way of communicating was violent. I came to see While psychologist and peace activist Marshall Rosenberg, author of the book I was reading at the hospital that night, he developed his practice of nonviolent communication in the 1960s as a tool to implement desegregation in the schools in the United States. 
He studied with psychologist Carl Rogers, who was the founder of humanist psychology and the person-centered approach to therapy. Nonviolent communication, or NVC for short, is as much a spiritual, communi- a spiritual practice as a communication style. It's based on the ancient Southeast Asian theological principle of ahimsa, the natural state of compassion when no violence is present in the heart. Ahimsa is a key virtue in Hinduism, Jainism, and it deeply informed Gandhi's activism. Before one can practice NVC as a communication style, Rosenberg admonishes that one must develop NVC as a kind of a consciousness and a spiritual intent. He says, most of us grew up speaking a language that encourages us to label, compare, demand, and pronounce judgments, rather than to be aware of what we're feeling and what we're needing. And this life-alienating communication is, in fact, rooted in views of human nature that have exerted their influence for several centuries. These views of human nature stress humans' innate evil and deficiency and a need for education to control our inherently undesirable nature. Such education often leaves us questioning whether there's something wrong with whatever needs and feelings we might be having. We learn really early, I think, in our culture to cut ourselves off from our life within. This life-alienating communication, it both stems from and supports hierarchical and domination societies. It would have been in the interests in kings and czars that the masses be educated in a way of communicating and thinking that renders them slave-like in mentality. He says, the more people are trained to think in terms of moralistic judgments that imply wrongness and badness, the more they're being trained to look outside themselves and to outside authorities for the definition of what constitutes right and wrong, good and bad, if there are even such things. When we're in contact, real contact, with our feelings and our needs, we humans really no longer make good slaves or underlings or pawns. From a theological perspective, I think Rosenberg's theory of nonviolent communication requires buy-in on three beliefs. One, that people are at their core good and compassionate. And two, that there are universal human needs. And three, that we are interconnected beings, such that what we say and do to one another matters to all of us. I think that Unitarian Universalism aligns with these three theological beliefs. In our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, shows UU alignment with the idea that people are, at their core, good and compassionate, and that there's a spark of the divine in everyone, wanting to be recognized and waiting to be addressed. And together, our second principle, the one I always forget, damn it, Justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. And our sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, 
Will those show UU alignment with the theological belief that there are universal human needs? And our seventh principle, respect for the inherent worth, no, respect for the interdependent web of existence of which we're all a part, that shows alignment with the third theological principle I see in NVC, that what one says and does affects all. So I think that adopting nonviolent communication as a spiritual practice would actually allow us to speak the language of our principles. The process of nonviolent communication has four parts that we'll, I'll illustrate. One, observe without evaluating. Two, express how you are feeling. Three, acknowledge the need behind the feeling. And four, make a request that would enrich your life. Every stage is rich with wisdom, but today we'll focus on stages two and three, which are feelings and needs. So I find that the world mostly teaches us to stuff our feelings down. You know, it likes them to come out in the form of acid reflux or maybe a headache, you know, things that the pharmaceutical companies can really cash in on. So, so we stuff them down and we deceptively package our judgments about others as our own feelings. Growing up, I think I memorized more vocabulary related to geometric feeling or geometric figures, you know, the trapezoid, the rhombus, that was the one I was never clear, all the, than I ever did about the language of feelings and emotions. And now I find that the geometric figures play a less critical role in my daily life, but they're still in there. And I got into a good college, you know, so it's not all for nothing, but I wish, looking back, I had put my energy a little bit more into the feeling words. So to develop NVC as a spiritual practice, I'm learning a new vocabulary of those feeling words. When I was studying Hebrew in seminary, I had the Hebrew alphabet posted on my medicine cabinet door. So whenever I was brushing my teeth, you know, I'd learn a little Hebrew, and that was pretty effective, I think, since I've forgotten it, you know, three years later entirely. But now I, I've put up my list of feeling words there, and so I can really parse out. Like, it's not all, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. No, my therapist says, Lee, there's like a there's like 180 other words you can use. Please stop using the word good. Like, we're not, that one's out. So I have these words on my medicine cabinet door, and I'm, I'm learning them. And during the first 2020 presidential debate, which I think was about as violent discussion as I've ever heard, I was struck by how angry they both seemed, both Biden and Trump, and the absence of that anger ever being directly named. I much preferred the tone of President Biden's victory speech, and I'll read some lines of it so you can hear those feeling words that are in there and the needs that he's identified. It's a much better example of nonviolent communication than his work during the debates. He says, I'm humbled by the trust and confidence you have placed in me. I'm proud of the campaign that we built and ran. I'm proud of the coalition we put together, the broadest and most diverse in history. In talking about a hymn that meant a lot to him, he says, I hope it can provide some comfort 
and solace for the more than 230 families who have lost a loved one this terrible virus year. And to those who voted for President Trump, he says, I understand your disappointment tonight. Feelings form a foundation for actual and authentic communication. They connect us. So identifying our own feelings and expressing curiosity about the feelings of others, that honors the inherent worth and dignity of both parties. And then after you identify the feelings, the next step in NVC is to identify a universal need that underlies those feelings. And this can be really unpleasant if you, frankly, if you're disagreeing with a person who's you're communicating with. I think here of a patient I was seeing um, during the height of the pandemic when I was worried that my dad maybe had gotten COVID, which he hadn't, but I worried about it like 1,200 times a day. And it was the same day that I found out that President Trump had COVID. And I went to see this patient on my floor who was there for an amputation. And he had a camo hat, you know, and so I started to get a little nervous when I went in and I saw the camo hat and I was forming some opinions in my mind, probably wrongly, but maybe not. And then he started talking about how COVID was not really a thing and it was totally overblown. And I kind of froze up and I thought, well, my work here, my ministry is to support this person while they're in the hospital, but I'm kind of swamped by my own needs and feelings and I can't really in this moment see any worth in what this person is offering here. And so I almost sort of said, oh, my pager's gone off, you know. Oh, co code blue, I got to go to another floor. I'll see ya. See ya, camo hat. But, in <laughs> but instead, I, since, well, I mean, I was reading the book, right? Like, I'm in an education program. I'd just been reading the book, so I thought, okay, nonviolent communication. What am I going to do here? So I kind of identified, I, didn't, I reflected back the feelings I was getting from him and the nonverbals. I was seeing his body, I was seeing his tense, I was seeing his voice was raised, you know, I was seeing he was really passionate about what he was saying. And then that kind of paved the way for just settling down on my body and listening a little bit. And then it came out that, you know, he really didn't have, it wasn't so much about COVID, like he... He didn't care as much about COVID as I thought he should, and his, his safety practices around COVID were wholly inadequate. But, but what he was really caring about was that everybody else was talking about COVID and nobody was talking about how he didn't have a left foot anymore. And, you know, that was really important to him. That was a need that he had, and it wasn't being met. And so we were able to talk about that, and then he just got a lot softer, and things kind of opened up between us. And I think, you know, if it had been another day, I would have been like, oh, code blue, I've got to go to the ER. But, but, but being able to use those tools and harness that as a spiritual practice, thinking this is my ministry and that to do it, I have to be able to meet a person who has a different opinion than me and really see them as a person. And I suspect that in the next two years particularly, that's going to be something that we all face at various times. Thanksgiving and Christmas probably particularly, those have become robustly violent holidays in many households. 
All right. Well, so after we identify the feelings, the next step is to identify that universal need. Because feelings never arise in isolation. There's always a cause for the feeling. Like the feeling, the, the emotions that guy was having about COVID, well, those were caused by his feelings about his amputation. So a person's words or actions, that might stimulate a feeling in me like, oh, I hate your political views and I think you're a fool regarding COVID safety. But that that feeling is actually born of my own unmet need. Like, I'm worried about my dad. That's my, I, I need people to keep my dad safe. That's my need. So I didn't feel exasperated during that first presidential debate because Trump and Biden kept interrupting them, each other. What I felt exasperated about was that my need for a sense of safety in our nation's leader was going completely unmet. And so connecting to our own need, that's a practice and it takes humility, but it is, I would say, the path to compassion and certainly the path to compassionate speaking. Since little of the world prepares us to name our own feelings, it, name, it prepares us even less to name our own needs. A few of these universal needs are love, acceptance, belonging, physical safety, peace, order, and meaning. And one of the things I love about our UU principles is that they beautifully articulate these fundamental human needs. So if you just think to our principles, well, you'll be tracking pretty well for like an 80% list of fundamental human needs. With an ear to those unmet needs, think back, if you can, to the 2020 vice presidential debate where Vice President Kamala Harris kept saying to then-Vice President, um, Mr. Vice President, I am still speaking. And she must have said that, she must have said it 20 times. You know, it was clearly something that she had practiced. She knew she was going to need that. She had it ready. And I feel like if she had been using nonviolent communication, she would have instead said, Mr. Vice President, I, I, you know, I feel frustrated. I feel irritated because my needs for respect are not being met when you interrupt me. But I think probably her team would not have vetted that, right? Because that would have sounded that would have sounded pretty soft and we would not have an African American female vice president. So instead they went with this much more violent, you know, not really saying anything response. So I just use that as an example that our society is really not set up to recognize and value clear and articulate expressions of feelings and needs. And that's too bad, because as Dr. Rosenberg says, the moment people begin talking about what they need, instead of talking about what's wrong with the other person's position, the possibility of finding ways to meet everyone's needs are greatly increased. Identifying that universal human need on both sides of the argument um, promotes positive change and transformation. And it, that's whether the disagreement is over abortion or over the church budget, or how to increase equity in American society. What people do or don't say and do or don't do about anything is about a need that is or isn't being met. That's 
if I, if I maybe would have just said that like a couple times and not had some of these anecdotes, you would maybe have remembered it better, but I went the other way. Um, Dr. Roxy Manning, who's a black NVC certified trainer and clinical psychologist, she writes about how NVC can be used in the quest for racial justice. NVC, she says, invites us to look beneath the most heinous strategies and find the needs that those strategies were designed to meet. When we uncover the needs, we're not saying that those strategies are okay. We're not saying, gee, now that I know your intention, I forgive you. No, we fully acknowledge the incredible loss and the pain that those strategies are causing in our society, but while still seeing the needs that are underneath. And by seeing the need, we can work towards a new strategy, she says, that results in far less harm. She says, if you want to show up and help, you can offer empathy that's grounded in the belief that everyone's humanity matters. So make no mistake, learning and using NVC, that will make waves at first, wherever you use it. Because it sounds kind of weird and stilted to the, to the ears that we've been cultured to have. But compassion and nonviolence and communication, those are as heretical um, to the religion of American culture as Unitarian or Universalist belief, beliefs ever were in their time. But we are a faith that's founded on that, on heresy. And we could be leaders in a new way of being, especially in such a incendiary time as we're in. So we could say what others won't say. And we could talk about our feelings and needs explicitly, at least within the safe haven of our own church, which is also in a liminal time. Wonder aloud about the needs and feelings of whoever you're with. And in doing so, know that you're honoring the needs of both of you. And you're speaking out loud the principles of your faith, even the principles that we all kind of forget because they're in the middle of one and they're in the middle of seven. And you're contributing to transformation through compassion. Amen and blessed be. Go forth this week of growing tension, uncertainty, and suffering, and be brave enough to name your own feelings and needs and hold those of others with compassion. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.